So welcome to my house in Hertfordshire in uh, England. And Craig Payne's here, all the way from Melbourne, uh, via Spain, via Portugal. And Luton. And via Luton. You've seen all the best parts of England. And Maidstone. Oh, Maidstone. Down Robert. Seen Big Rob. So, <clears throat> let's just get stuck in, because I don't think you've got lots of time, have you? Mm-hmm. We'll start with some of the questions that came in. And um, we're going to start with Simon Spooners, because you spent last week with him, and because it's a good question, and that is, the paper you have read which changed your mind the most? Um... I've forgotten the author's names. Uh, Irene McClay was the second author. What was the first one? Which the orthosis paper? Yeah. Dorsey Williams? Uh, Williams and, and McLean, where they um, compared no orthoses to a river type orthoses to an inverted orthoses in people who the inverted orthoses had actually provided symptomatic relief when the root device hadn't. They showed no kinematic differences, but then showed massive kinetic differences, and I think back then that was when that quite substantially changed my thinking on a lot of things um, certainly set off a lot of my teaching on a very very different course once I came to the realisation that it was about the kinetics and not the kinematics yeah it's a great paper I'm going to ask you a question actually yeah. just off the back of that one of my favourite papers I ever read as a student was yours not just saying that because you're here it yeah. was your past present and future oh, okay. of pediatric biomechanics yeah. you may you may get this all the time if you wrote that to 1998 Eight. so we're now nearly what's that 20 30 30 years on um, it, if you wrote that today how would that differ um, I, I almost want to disown that paper now um, <laughs> again it was probably one of the, the first papers to perhaps critique root theory um, I want to take that critique back uh, I think I got it wrong. I, I think most of, I, I've in recent years have been somewhat quite a defender of root theory because I think most of the critiques of it and the critique I did were not a critique of root theory. They were a critique of something that people had interpreted to be root theory. And I think if you go back to the core of what Mert Root was talking about, um, my critiques and a lot of others uh, are not really directed at that. So I probably want to take that paper back. I think the if I was to rewrite it now, it would be obviously redone to incorporate the the changes of thinking around the kinetics, the kinematics, uh, those kinds of issues. I just think we've just learnt so much more. I think the the models in there have evolved. I think I now have a list of over 30 different models rather than the four I talked about in that paper. Um, if you look in detail at all 30 models, they, they all have something interesting in it. Um, some of the models I've been very dismissive of. I just saw a light come across the screen. Cool. Thank you. Um, I, I just, <laughs> I, 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 we've never done one of these before. <laughs> it's obvious, <laughs> I think. The, no, what I'm saying is you can pull something, you know, spring theory, flow motion model, um, you, you name it, the, some of them are, are, are junk pseudoscience, but then you can pull little snippets of good stuff from them. So if I was to rewrite it, I'd probably perhaps incorporate some of the snippets that come from e- each of those. Um, I'd probably want to revisit the paper and look more where all what the models have in common and probably uh, explain more clearly where they differ, and hopefully that would be more helpful. So, yeah. Cool, right, let's, let's move on. 
Ian Sadler, who is, do you know Ian? He's a UK, UK-based colleague of mine. I think he's in Norwich, sort of Norfolk way. Um, he would value our opinion on the implementation of research into practice, benefits and limitations of studies and research method relating to the patient in front of you. I have to go soon. Um, <laughs> no, I we, think this is, this yeah, is due yeah. to the work that suggests it takes anywhere between 17 and 24 years for, for, for yeah. an idea to make it yeah. into practice. Well, I can recall going to a seminar workshop, it was probably about 15 years ago, and it was, and they used the example of uh, the use of aspirin in cardiac patients. And what they did was they took the very first study and then they did a meta-analysis of the first and the second study. Then they did a meta-analysis of the first, second and third study, first, second, third and fourth study. So, and then they showed that on a, on a plot and they were able to show in what year there was enough evidence that the plot did not include zero. So the evidence was really clear there was a benefit. They then went through Harrison's Internal Medicine, every edition of that, and a couple of other standard textbooks, and they plotted what year did they finally recommend um, aspirin or disprin for cardiac patients. And it was like a 12 to 15 year gap. So the evidence was really clear through the sequential meta-analyses many, many, many years before the standard textbooks were... um, advising it. So again, it takes a long time, but I think to come back to answer the question, it would probably take all night to to answer it. And it's not as easy as what you think. I mean, obviously I'm a huge fan of evidence, but the bulk of what we do is not and will never be um, evidence-based in that there's never going to be enough randomised controlled trials on everything we do to support everything we do. So then we have to start using things like theoretical coherence, biological plausibility, and most importantly, consistent with the available evidence. So it's not, I don't think it's going to be as easy as we, we want to think it can be. And again, I think to, I could spend all night talking about the reasons. And, and, you know, but the key thing is that whatever we do, whatever we believe in, has to be consistent with the evidence. Um, and, and too often you um, see conference presentations, you see Facebook posts that have all the characteristics of pseudoscience and, and you know, the way forward is we've got to stop doing that and stop supporting that. Um, yeah. I'm not going to add anything to that. Yeah. <laughs> when you've got Craig Payne in your kitchen, you, don't, you listen, you don't speak. Um, let's go on to David Udim's uh, point, which was asking you your opinion on the use of Graston technique for treating Achilles tendinopathy, plantar fasciopathy, when would this be indicated, uh, for how long, yeah. etc.? Um, it's not. <laughs> Next. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 okay, no, no, okay, look, I think, no, no I, I'll take that back. There's these aggressive manual therapy techniques to break up scar tissue don't work. I mean, you can't break up scar tissue. But if you've got to think, what, what is Achilles tendinopathy? What is plantar fasciopathy? They occur when the cumulative load in the tissue exceeds what the tissues can take. So it's tissue loading and tissue capacity. So how do you manage it? One, you reduce the load and you increase the ability of the tissue to take the load. Um, NSAIDs don't do that. Cortisone injections don't do that. Shockwave therapy don't do that. The gastrin technique and these aggressive physical 
um, sort of manipulative approaches don't do that. You know, at the end of the day, you've got to reduce the load, you've got to increase the tissue capacity. Those things are indicated, NSAIDs, cortisone, gastric, whatever, are indicated when that um, is not going as well as you would like. So when you need to facilitate the healing. So if you reduce the load by modifying activity or thosis strapping, and then you increase the capacity of the tissues to take the load by adaptation, all those kinds of issues, if that's not progressing as well as you'd like, you then need to facilitate healing. And gastron is just one of many techniques. In fact, just on that, I, I have a question for you to think about for a moment. How many of you know what the ASTEM technique is for plantar fasciopathy? So think about that for a moment. There is a website that, um, and I've forgotten its name, I, I might, I'll put it in the comments later if I remember. And it's a big website, and anyone with any medical condition can go to and you rate how useful particular treatments are for you. So on this website, and this is what patients think fixes them. Now on this particular website, the ASTEM was the most highly rated treatment for plantar fasciitis, rated by people with plantar fasciitis that they think fixed them. Okay, it was it got a score of four out of five, I think, in the hundred or so reviews. I think the second highest was supportive shoes at about 3.6 out of 5. Um, orthotics was 3 out of 5. Um, injections were 3 out of 5. So, so again, the, the, uh, the big difference between what we think works and what patients think works. That's super. Um, I agree with, with Common Ollie Ruston just, just uh, yesterday, or it may have been this morning. You on MSK UK, run yeah. by Emma and Jill? The, um, I think it was like, uh, Chris Swarbrick commented mm. and, and posted the, the video from Jill Cook and the guys at the Trove yeah. um, regarding the 10 things not to do oh, okay. with, with a tendinopathy. Yep. Yep. I think I'm sure you've seen it. It was uh, written as a blog mm. last year, yeah, and yeah. Um, two of them pretty much touch on the point that mm. these these sort of hand-on and additional mm. things are probably uh, best mm. best avoided. Mm. So I'd probably... Uh, Add that as well. Yeah. Right. What else have we got? Let's see. Do you want to uh, <laughs> do you want to go down the route of the cuboid syndrome discussion? <laughs> okay, fine. Um, let's see what else we've got. If we've got any comments coming in, Athol wants to know which airport in the world serves the best breakfast from a travelled man such as yourself. Porto was pretty not a pretty cool airport. Um, Schiphol in Amsterdam is right up there among the best. Um, yeah, Schiphol and Porto are probably the best two airports I've been through. Really? Of all, Luton, Luton, Luton wasn't up. There. <laughs> hey, this is this is a primarily UK audience. <laughs> um, so I feel a bit of a I feel like we've got to touch on the keyboards and it's from Jason. Do you know Jason? Everyone knows Jason in Australia, right? So I met Jason when I came to Australia to, to lecture in Perth. And uh, I don't know if he's watching, but hello if you are, Jason. Probably one of the most enthusiastic, I think he was a third year at the time, enthusiastic students I've ever met. So I feel like we owe it to him to touch on it, but we don't need to go too deep. Uh, I've made my thoughts via a video before, kind of clear, I think, on keyboard syndrome. Um, and I've had discussions with people I respect, such as Ted, Jed, and Ian Lenane, to name but two. I don't think we've ever spoken about no, it. Um, I, I avoid the topic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's... It, 
it's, it's like that pornography joke in the Supreme Court um, that there was a court case many years ago in which the Supreme Court had to do a ruling on a pornography case and so the, the justices had to give their opinion and whether this person was going to win or lose the case depended on the, the way that justices define pornography and it didn't go too well for him but one of the justices defined pornography as I know it when I see it so that's how I approach cuboid syndrome I know it when I see it I just can't define it um, yeah it, it, it's I was worried where you were going with that to be honest well no it's like a lot of it, it, you know, it, it, I, I don't know how to define it but I know it when I see it and that's how the justice defined pornography so cuboid syndrome I know it when I see it I don't know how to define it um, I, I know what I do when I see it I know what I do when I manage it but what exactly is going on is I would have to admit I have no idea um, I would refer people back to Gamble and Yale's 1977 book on radiology there is an awesome section on the cuboid in that um, that does explain a lot of the, the different movements and positions the cuboid can be in depending on the various fault, fault syndromes if you want to go that way um, I know Ted Jednak's taken that work and tried to explain it all on that. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with him. I'm just not yet convinced I, I know what is and what is going on. So, so, so you're not, you're not uh, a subscriber to the concept of the the cuboid, you know, subluxing or moving out of place and our, and our hands-on yeah. work puts it back into place. I, again, I'm not convinced, but when you look at Gamble and Yale's x-rays, the cuboids are in different position and different feet depending on the various fault syndromes. So mm-hmm. whether you want to turn that as a subluxation or moving out of place and putting it back, but, you know, you've got a cuboid that the perineal tendon's pulling out of place and you push it back into place, well, you know, what's going to happen the next time that perineal fires? So... Again, I, but having said that, that doesn't mean that the manual therapy is not good, not a good therapeutic intervention for the mm-hmm. symptoms surrounding that. I, again, I'm, I'm, you know, I acknowledge what Gamble and Yale say with all these different positions, but just, you know, I'm just, I'm not, I, I, I don't know what exactly what is going on. And I'm sure the one thing we agree, agree on, I'm sure, is the concept, the poor concept of any patient coming in with sort of pain in that region yeah. being attached to that diagnosis yeah. without any level of clinical oh, yeah. reason. Yeah. There's no disagreement there, I'm sure. Great. Yeah. Um, another question for me, actually. Um, feel free to, if you're watching, pile in with any more questions for Craig while he's here. He's le- uh, leaving soon. Um, is there any questions coming while we're watching? I'm going to ask you about the paper you wrote recently in Podiatry Today, um, the foot orthoses paper, which uh, I know we've spoken about um, before, and you expected, you know, you almost sort of wrote it and it went, to, got published, and you sort of, you know, took went to a cover, didn't you? Expecting serious shots to be to be fired, and, and uh, what was your well for, for those that aren't aware of it. Talk about what it was and then well, what, what your experience. For those that haven't seen it, just search for Podiatry Day. It was the the cover story a month or so ago. Um, I took some pot shots at a lot of practices in orthotic labs. Uh, I expected to take quite a bit of flack for that, so I was prepared to go to ground. Um, but what actually happened was is quite a few lab owners contacted me and told me I didn't go far enough. So that, that was so I felt a bit safer and I, I feel a bit more confident taking, talking about the issues now. Um, actually, for my online boot camp, I just put a, a lecture together in that and I put in one slide and I screenshot that slide 
and set that slide to several lab owners. And the slide pretty much summed up what was in that paper, and it said something like um, legal ways for labs to get a competitive advantage. And then the question was, is it ethical? So the the manufacturing, so the design and manufacturing of photosynthesis is that it, to me is actually a, a quite laborious, time-consuming process. Um, so for a, a lab to be profitable, the temptation to take shortcuts in that process is quite substantial. The problem is the more compromises you make in the terms of shortcuts, you might as well have used the prefab. Um, you know, the, the CAD design process to design an orthotic properly is actually time-consuming. If you use a template-type system in your CAD system, um, it's going to save a lot of time, which is money, but well, what's the point of doing that? You might as well use the prefab. So this was the, the thrust. The, the I don't know when you send a pair of casts to the lab, how often the left and right foot come back looking exactly the same. So are they true custom devices if they look the same? Now, people don't like the left and right to look this different. So there's a compromise being made in the manufacturing process. I even know of one system that's being promoted at the moment encouraging podiatrists to only scan one foot and send that to the lab. The lab will design it. The CAD system will just flip it to the other foot. Now, you can imagine the cost saving to the lab of doing that. That will make the lab more profitable. But what is the ethics of doing that? Um, so those were some of the issues I touched on in the paper. You know, the use of library devices... Um, I have no problem with library devices as long as labs are explicit that they're using them and passed on a cost saving. I, I suspect a lot of cases the cost savings are not being passed on. There uh, is one lab I know of who is using uh, li a, li a bank of library positives um, and didn't tell the, their customers that they were doing that. And this is what I mean. These are the legal methods to get a competitive advantage that you question the, the ethics of it. Um, because the, the design and manufacturing process of orthotics is, is time-consuming, um, and they're always trying to take shortcuts. And at what stage do those shortcuts mean we should just stick to a prefab in the first place? Or a pre-made device? We've just had a lovely comment. You see this one? Um, posted by someone called Feelings of Love. And it's a quote from the Dalai Lama. It's just beautiful. I don't know how it's relevant to... Uh, our field of, of, uh, of interest um, but yeah it's lovely to know that the Dalloway is possibly watching right yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so one more one more one more question before we have to go um, you're known as uh, a cynic a sceptic sorry uh, you know woo basher you know the various types you give yourself and and, and you know I'm, we've been friends on Facebook for a long time so I see the fights that you get into on various uh, fora such as mm. anti-vax and, yeah. and uh, you know David Avocado Aubergine Wolf and, yeah. and things it, what's the one thing within our field within podiatry at the moment that, that, that's the biggest bee in your bonnet the one thing that if you if you had a fight that you someone said you can win this fight tomorrow oh, okay. what's yeah. the one you'd want to take on first oh, I get but no um, <laughs> the, Sorry, I just whispered something to you. I think the, 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 the big issue for me in, well, within podiatry and in the other things I'm active in is the difference between science and pseudoscience. I see the characteristics of what is a pseudoscience creeping through in so much. Um, so many uh, word salads, the 
the, the, you know, some of the characteristics of a of science versus pseudoscience is the you know engaging with critics rather than um, banning them and dismissing them. I, I've been banned from quite a few Facebook pages recently. Um, the another characteristic of pseudoscience is um, the, the 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 creative terminology, the the use of made up terminology, the um, you know, science tries to prove itself wrong. The pseudoscientists um, cherry pick data that supports what they want to support. It's all those, all those characteristics I, I see in so much of what people are trying to advance, you know, within podiatry and, and outside as well. It's that failure to engage with critics, the dismissing of critics, the cherry picking of data. The, and they're easy to beat. The problem is when I try and beat them, I get banned. Um, so you, 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 it, it does get frustrating. And, and, um, and, and again, I think, I'm presuming a lot of people, I can see a lot of names here that I recognise and you know exactly what and who I'm talking about. Um, uh, question in here from Victoria Griffiths. How do you like my cooking? Um, no, no. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> Right, uh, what time do you need to shoot off? I don't think there's any other questions coming in, so let's... I don't even know what the etiquette is with regards to how long a Facebook Live should be, but I feel like this will do. So uh, thank you to the 31, 30, 32 people watching. What a, what a result. Um, absolute pleasure to have Craig in my house, as always, and um, hope you found it interesting. And if you've got any questions uh, off the back of this, or just, just put them in the comments, and I'm sure Craig's yeah. he's always online, he'll, he'll reply to them in due course. So yeah. I think we'll leave it there, shall we? Okay. Good stuff. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> okay.